right, good evening, folks. Welcome to the mine. A um, couple things. Uh, just want to promote, for any of you that are interested, this coming Sunday night, April the 30th at 6 p.m., in one of these rooms, or maybe both of these rooms, if the partition's up like it is on Tuesday nights, we're going to be dealing with the Da Vinci Code and the Gospel of Judas and all of that on Sunday night during what's called our question and answer class. Uh, that will also be in the bulletin again uh, as a reminder like it was last Sunday, and we'll also have a verbal on Sunday too leading up to the 6 o'clock service. So I'll be here 6 o'clock, and I'll probably stay until the last question is answered. Okay? Hopefully I can... It's a tribulation, you know. Yeah. Ho- hopefully I can... Uh, answer a lot of questions up front with what I have to share with you, because I think I've probably logged about 100 hours on the Da Vinci Code. So uh, I think I I got enough to help some folks. And, and again, we're looking at this at Cornerstone as a way to strengthen believers. Uh, that's the way I'm looking at this. Uh, we're not looking at this to try to you know, beat somebody over the head. We're looking at this as we we are noticing that there are Christians who are having their faith shaken and unsettled by these things, and we don't want that to happen. We we God wants our faith to be a settled faith and a, a firm faith. In fact, we're going to talk a little bit about that tonight as well, and that's primarily what we're doing. I mean, to show you the impact of this book and this upcoming movie, uh, just to give you one example of many, uh, there was a guy on the internet that basically said that after he read the Da Vinci Code, he'll never set foot in a church again. Oh, wow. That's the kind of impact that this is having and that we are trying to prevent from happening, uh, especially with those who know the Lord and... uh, we, we don't want their faith to be shaken. Uh, so we'll be dealing with that Sunday night. So if you know of anybody that would be interested in that, you make sure that they know about Sunday night, 6 o'clock, right here in the, one of these rooms or both of these rooms or whatever. Uh, I think it'll it'll be beneficial to, to the folks who come. Will All that right. be taped to be put on the... Uh, don't the think so, but I'll check on that. I'll check on... Um, all right, so we need to get into Revelation 17 and 18 tonight, and as you've seen, we have notes. But the reason I did that is because Revelation 17 and 18, probably out of all the chapters in Revelation, can really cause some people some twists and turns and confusion and whatnot. So I wanted to lay this out to try to give you a real order and, and a sense of clarity of what's happening here so that you have a record of it and you can go back and refer to it and it'll be a help to you and maybe even then you can help others to understand Revelation 17 and 18. But, as usual, before we jump into it tonight, let's open up with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your word. And Lord, uh, we thank you for the fulfillment of your word. And we see it being fulfilled, Lord, in front of our eyes each and every day. And Lord, uh, you have said that... uh, Not one jot, not one tittle, uh, the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet and and the smallest punctuation mark will not pass away from your word until everything in it is absolutely fulfilled. So Lord, we thank you for giving us such a 
a stability, such such a rock, such a word that we can have total confidence and trust in, uh, because you're faithful and you're faithful to your word. And Father, as we get into your word tonight, again, we just pray that you would be uplifted and glorified and honored, and that we would all leave here just thankful that we know you, uh, thankful, Lord, that we're going to heaven, our sins are forgiven, and thankful, Lord, that we have this book, that we can study and that we can learn more about your plan and purpose, Lord, for our lives and for the future of this, this earth. And these things we ask in Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, let's dive into it tonight, all right? Revelation chapter 17. In Revelation 17, we see this. We see the worldwide influence of what I am calling the apostate church. The reason being is because the church, as we all know, in the rapture is gone at this point. Okay? So what is left is really a false church. Okay? A church that is powerless as far as God's power is concerned. Sort of like Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, 5, they have a form of godliness, an outward appearance of godliness, but there's no power there. All right, A powerless religion as far as God's power is concerned. So the apostate church is illustrated here in Revelation 17 as this great harlot or prostitute that we are introduced to. All right, The great prostitute is the apostate church. And the reason we believe that to be true is because throughout the Bible, Old and New Testaments, when you talk about like the prostitution issue, and you're not talking about a literal prostitute or harlot, you're talking about a situation of spiritual idolatry, of spiritual harlotry. In fact, we're going to see that later tonight over here in James chapter 4, where uh, God talks about that. So what you are introduced to then in Revelation 17 is this apostate church, and again, the worldwide influence of this church. Because again, one of the marks of the last days is not just a one-world government under the Antichrist and a one-world economy, but also, in a sense, a one-world ecumenical religion. A religion that is already being, the foundation of it is already being laid in our lifetime, where... It doesn't matter what we believe. We just need to love each other and get along. And doctrine's not important and truth isn't important. And, and what is being created is this synchristic form where it's like all religions are right. You know, and everybody's going to heaven and all of this. Well, that's going to really predominate during the tribulation period. All right? It is a false church. It is a false religion, and it will be the one thing that will web through the entire world and bring the whole world together. And you see this here. Notice verse uh, 1. I will show you the condemnation and punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters. And, of course, again, we've seen in the book of Revelation where the waters just represent humanity, the peoples of the world, with whom the kings of the earth, verse 2, committed sexual immorality, and the earth's inhabitants got drunk, with the wine of her immorality. You see, the church is going to be a very immoral church. All right? Again, powerless as far as righteousness is concerned. It's going to be a church that, again, may look good on the outside. It may be a church that's stamped church, but there's no righteousness there. There's, there's no Christ-likeness there. There's immorality all over the place. 
And then you go to verses 15 and 18, and you see this again. Then the angel said to me, the waters you saw, where the prostitute is seated, are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. Again, I'm just illustrating for you out of this passage, the worldwide influence of the apostate church. And then verse 18, as for the woman you saw, she is the great city that has sovereignty over the kings of the earth. So you can just see there, as we're introduced to this prostitute, you see the worldwide influence of this false church, of this one world church that's just going to web through the entire earth and going to be present during the first part of the tribulation. Now, I'm, I'm going to come back to some of these, and I'm going to, if you have any questions, but let me just sort of flow through this, and then we'll go back and cover a little bit, a little bit more. The second thing you notice here is this. The roots of this false church go back to the very beginning of mankind. Because you'll notice here in verse 5 of Revelation 17 that on her forehead, the forehead of this great prostitute, was written a name, a mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the detestable things of the earth. And again, that gives us a clue that we're talking here about false religion, about an apostate church, a church that abandoned true faith and it's accepted a false faith. And the reason we know that is because of the reference to Babylon. Babylon has existed for a long, long time. And if we go back to the book of Genesis, to chapter 11, we're introduced to a place called Babel, a place that this guy Nimrod started. And if you know Genesis, you know the story. Nimrod and all the inhabitants around that place through their pride, began to build this huge tower that was going to reach to heaven. And the Bible says that when God saw it, he saw how their hearts were just committed to do nothing but evil. And as long as they were united together, it was just going to be really bad. So God said in his wisdom, here's what I'm going to do. They all speak one language at this point. I'm going to go down and I'm going to confound their language and, and I'm going to spread them out throughout different parts of the earth so that they cannot be unified together to sort of help each other just do more and more evil. It's almost like what one couldn't think of, the other one could, and so the company just wasn't good for each other. So God scattered the inhabitants of the earth all over the earth with different languages, and that's why today we live in a world where you have uh, French and Italian and Spanish and English and all those different languages around the world, that goes all the way back to the, to the book of Genesis, to chapter 11, and Babel, okay, Babel in Genesis is really the beginning of Babylon. And in Babylon, soon after, Nimrod's wife, whose name was Saramis, started a cult, a false religion. It was a religion that worshipped the queen of heaven and the queen of heaven's son, a guy by the name of Tammuz. And you read about the queen of heaven and her son Tammuz in books like Jeremiah and I think Ezekiel. All right. So if you've ever read through the Bible and you've come across Tammuz and the queen of heaven, what's that? That was this false religion that Nimrod's wife started way back in Babylon. Okay? So when the Bible mentions Babylon, Babylon has always been, since its beginning history, sort of the seat or the headquarters 
of false religion and false faith. They never adopted a belief in the one true God. They were always coming up with different things. Well, obviously, nothing has changed, has it? We, we move now to our day and age, and you're just continuing in the same things that were started way back then. In fact, Babylon is such a key city that there's only one city that's mentioned more than Babylon in the Bible. Can anybody guess what that city is? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Babylon is mentioned 237 times in the Bible. That's huge. It is the second most written about city in the Bible except for Jerusalem. So again, Babylon, very key here. It ties in with the whole concept of abandoning the worship of the true God and adopting these these weird beliefs and the worship of the Queen of Heaven and the worship of her son rather than the worship of the one true God. And again, nothing has changed. All right? Okay? Um, So I wanted to point that out because, again, in Revelation, the mystery is just going back and understanding Babylon the Great and how that all ties in. Then you'll notice also in Revelation 17 what I call the marriage of false religion and the final world empire, how they will work together. And, and, and you know what's interesting about that is you even see that in our day and age. You know, they, they, the liberals holler about separation of church and state, separation of church and state, which really, if you know anything about the Constitution and all that, that's not what it says. But anyway, I'm not going to get into that tonight. But they holler about the separation of church and state as far as they understand it, that somehow, you know, it means we're not to have anything to do with faith in our country or anything like that. And uh, that's totally not what the Founding Fathers uh, were thinking. But it's very interesting, even in our day and age, that when you get a liberal church, you can get all kinds of politicians to go there and fill their pulpit, and nobody ever says a word. I mean, you get you get people to go to these liberal churches that don't preach the Bible, and you get CNN and everybody to cover it, and they don't have a problem at all with things like that, you know. But you get somebody to come to a church, say, like ours, and man, you'd have all kinds of people hollering. And it just goes to show you that as long as it's a false religion, they'll, they'll cozy right up to it. Because in a sense, they're, they're the same. All right, And we see this, look at verse 3 and verse 7. That's why you see in Revelation 17 that the woman, the great prostitute, and the beast are you know sort of sitting on or... Or close to each other. So he carried me away in the spirit, chapter 17, verse 3, to a wilderness. And there I saw a woman, I believe that's the great prostitute, sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. And of course, going back to what we've studied earlier, that's going to be this final world empire that we're going to talk about in a little bit. And the false religion is just sitting there, and they're sort of just coexisting and and married to each other. Then if you go up to verse 7... But the angel said to me, why are you astounded? I will interpret for you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and ten horns that carries her. So, again, you see this this marriage between the final world empire and the false religion, how they're actually going to work together for a time. And again, I'm just sharing with you what chapter 17 is all about, is really this, this apostate church and this final world empire and how they work together for a while and how that all fits in. Now, to make another, hopefully, some sense out of this, you'll also notice in Revelation 17, we're introduced to what I call the succession of world empires. And this passage can cause a lot of confusion to people, but just hang in there with me. Begin in verse 9. 
This requires a mind that has wisdom, and not that my mind has wisdom. Okay, I don't mean it that way. But it's just saying that you've got to think about this. Okay, The seven heads are seven mountains the woman sits on. They are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come, but whenever he does come, he must remain for only a brief time. The beast that was and is not is himself an eighth king, and yet is one of the seven and is going to destruction. The ten horns that you are you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but will receive ruling authority as kings with the beast for one hour. All right, first of all, let's go back here to verse 9. He's saying there have been five world empires up to this time. All right, verse 9 and verse 10. But five have fallen. So... The first great world empire, Egypt, gone. Assyria, gone. Babylon, gone. Persia, or Medes and Persians, gone. And Greece, gone. Then you'll notice in verse 10, he says, and one is, meaning the Roman Empire, because when John wrote this, the Roman Empire was the ruling world empire. So you got five kingdoms, five world empires that have passed off the scene. You have one that in John's day is presently ruling the world, Rome, and then notice this, the other, verse 10, has not yet come. In other words, the last world empire, this final world empire, that's made up of this confederation of ten kings and of the Antichrist leading them, has not come yet. Okay, so you, you got that so far, all right? Then notice this, whenever he does come, meaning the Antichrist in his kingdom, he's only going to come for a short time. Compared to these other world kingdoms, uh, his kingdom doesn't last long at all. Then notice this, verse 11. The beast, the Antichrist, in his kingdom that was and is not, is himself an eighth king. Well, what's that mean? It simply means this, that for a while, he's going to cooperate with this Ten-nation confederation. But there's going to come a point, at some point in the tribulation, and I believe it's at the midpoint of the tribulation, where he goes in to the temple in Jerusalem, as we saw last week, and declares himself to be God and the whole world has to worship him. And at that point, he doesn't need the ten kings anymore. He now alone becomes the eighth sort of world empire. So hang in there with me. According to God's word, there's going to be eight world empires, as far as our understanding of the world goes. Six, for us, have already come and gone. Okay? One is about to come. It's already being formulated even as we speak. It's going to be a nation, or a, a, a confederation of ten kings or ten nations somewhere on the planet. And somewhere in there, in that ten-nation confederation, the Antichrist is going to rule as well. But then there's going to come a point where he then will not be part of the seventh worldwide kingdom, which was that one that I just described, but he himself will be the eighth world empire, the worship of the Antichrist that we have seen. I hope this is making sense, so let's move on. So verse 12, the ten horns that you saw are these ten kings. Again, they have not received the kingdom yet. They have not come on the scene yet, especially in John's day. Now, maybe right now, maybe they're here. 
you know, uh, we could be that close. But all I'm saying is six world empires have come and gone. We're waiting for the seventh one to come. But you see, once it really comes, we're going to be out of here anyway. We're going to be in heaven. Uh, and we certainly won't be around for the kingdom of the Antichrist. All right, so I, I wanted to cover that. But then you'll notice here also in verse 16, there is going to come this point where the union between the false religion even and the Antichrist and his empire is going to come to an end. When in verse 16 it says, The ten horns that you saw and the beast, these will hate the prostitute and make her desolate and naked. They will consume her flesh and burn her up with fire. In other words, there's also going to come a point where the kingdom of the Antichrist and these ten kings, they're not going to need the false church anymore. You see, they're only going to use the false church for their own purposes. And once they've used the false church for their own purposes, then they can get rid of her. Because remember, in a sense, the only faith that's going to exist at this time is going to be the worship of the Antichrist. So they're not going to need, they're not going to need any other kind of ecumenical apostate church anymore. The only religion, if you will, that's going to exist on planet Earth at this point is going to be the worship of the Antichrist. So they're going to wipe out the apostate church and get rid of her. Okay? Exactly what that means, I don't know. Is that going to mean, you know, that they're going to, you know, kill all those who are part of that? I don't know. But all I know is this. I think that they're going to give them an option. Now it's time to worship the Antichrist. Are you willing to worship the Antichrist or not? And going back to what we've already studied, are you willing to take the mark of the beast? If not, guess what? You're dead. Okay? So there's going to definitely be then come a point where they're not going to need the church anymore, the false church, and they're going to destroy that. And then again, I want you to see, and this is key, the brevity of this final world empire. This is mentioned four times in chapter 17. Because you'll notice, and I've already read some of these, in verse 8, it talks about the... Uh, Verse 10. Uh, at the end of verse 10, for only a brief time. Uh, then in verse 11, uh, going to destruction. And then verse 12, uh, just for one hour. These are all terms that just speak about how brief, especially if you compare the kingdom of the Antichrist with like Egypt and Assyria and Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome, that... The Antichrist and that kingdom is only going to be around for a couple of years. Well, compared to all the other world empires that came before it, that's a drop in the bucket. And that's why, and I don't want to, again, throw too much at you, but for those of you that know Daniel and you know how that ties in with prophecy, when you go back to the image that Nebuchadnezzar had and that ties into the book of Revelation, how that the kingdoms, uh, the world empires get a little bit more fierce as you go down the statue but they also get a little bit more weak in the sense that they're not going to last as long, you see. It's going to come on the scene and be very strong, but then it dies out really quickly, too, unlike the other world empires that came before them. It took years and years and years for them to die off the scene and get conquered by some other world empire. The kingdom of the Antichrist is going to be very, 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 very brief indeed. Alright, because next week we're going to see one of the most exciting passages in all the Word of God, Revelation 19, which is the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if there's a chapter that can get you excited, it's, it's that one. It's so cool, because we're in that chapter. Alright.
Then you'll also notice this in verse 14. During the tribulation, the pride of man is going to actually pursue a war with God. Because in verse 14 of chapter 17, they will make war with the Lamb, but the Lamb will conquer them because He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And here we are. Guess what? You and I are in this verse too. And those who accompany the Lamb are the called, chosen, and faithful. You see, sometimes when we read the Word, we think, oh man, I wish I was in the Bible. Well, most of the Bible has already taken place. But one cool thing about studying the book of Revelation is it hasn't taken place yet. So the book of Revelation is one book in the Bible where for you and I who are still alive, we're in there. And we're in verse 14 of Revelation 17. That's us. We're going to be the ones who accompany the King of Kings and Lord of Lords back to earth from heaven at the Battle of Armageddon where he destroys the armies of the world who have made war against him. I think the thing I just want you to see is it just shows how warped people are. They actually think they can fight against God. They actually think they can kill God. They actually think they can be God and overcome God. Well, you know, that's, that's sin. And isn't that exactly what Satan came to the point where he got to the point where the Bible says he was lifted up in pride one day. And he said, I will be like the Most High. I will make myself like the Most High. And, and it's almost like, I don't need God. I'm going to be God. And so you can just see how pride... Uh, gets into our lives and can just really warp us and destroy us, and that's exactly going to be present uh, during the tribulation period. How people can think they can actually go to war against God and they're going to win, but they do. And then, though, I, I do want you to see in verse 17 that the Bible reminds us in chapter 17, God is still on the throne. He is still in control, whatever John says. For God has put into their minds to carry out his purpose by making a decision to give their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And that's a key phrase. Because again, it reminds us what Jesus said. That every jot and tittle will be fulfilled. Nothing that God said is going to happen won't happen. It's going to happen exactly like God said it would. His word will be fulfilled to the letter. Okay? And that's exactly, so again, though all this stuff is going on down here on earth, let's not forget one of the key themes. And that is we're dealing with the revelation of the glorified Christ, and we're dealing with a God who is always on his throne, still on his throne, still in control. And so no matter what's happening here on the earth, and how crazy it looks here on the earth, and how everything just seems like it's going to pot, don't forget God's plan is still pressing forward, and God is still on the throne, God is still in control, and there are people still coming to know God, even during this dark time in human history, as we have seen. Alright, now that I've probably totally confused you, and that's as, trust me, that's as good as I can do in chapter 17, because it is a little, it's a little weird. You know, that's all I can say. It's just, it's a little, but I'm, I was trying to pull it apart and sort of put it back together to where I felt like it could make a little bit of sense to you rather than just reading the chapter and going, whoa, five fallen, what, what's he talking about there? All right, so I hope that's helpful to you. But before we move on to chapter 18, which is the chapter I really want to get to tonight, because we've got a lot of good practical application for that tonight, any questions or comments about what we've covered so far in Revelation 17? Yes. Seven-nation confederation, isn't that today's common market? There's like nine, last time I think, last time I looked, and the United States is one of those. It, it's very the possible. The currencies of the world, and there's 
that that's very possible what what Revelation is talking about. Yeah. It certainly is going to be some kind of confederation that is that is worldwide. In other words, it's pulling countries in from all different parts of the world. And obviously, as we've said, commerce is going to be the driving force because that is the one thing, more than even religion, that, that's worldwide. And I think that's why we're going to be pushing towards not just a united Europe and a, and a common currency in Europe, but I think we're going to get to the point at some point in the world where we're going to have a common currency worldwide. It's not just going to be a euro or a dollar. It's going to be something that's just going to go around the world. Because we, you know, like you, we live in a global economy now. And, and we all in our lifetime have seen how the world continues to shrink and shrink and shrink. So I know when I was growing up, you know, I thought, oh my goodness, you know, Japan and China and India and all these places, they just seem like so far away. And now because of our global economy and, and, and uh, businesses and and stuff in all these countries, and a lot of them are American companies in all these different countries, we're all pulled together. And like with cell phones and, and technology and stuff, we can talk to people all over the world at any time and stuff, and it, it just, yeah. And, and that's certainly a great possibility is that that's what it's going to end up being. Great, great insight and question. Any others? Yes, Brian. My question centers around uh, verse 18, is that is that reference to the woman you saw as the great city? Is that referring to Babylon rather than Jerusalem? Yes. And again, in chapter 17 and 18, Babylon is referred to as a literal city. Uh, and here's where the debate comes in. That's a good question because I should have I should have touched on this because I think it is important if you're going to study Revelation. There's a lot of there's a lot of debate over is Babylon is it going to be rebuilt and is it is it talking about literal Babylon in in Iraq you know 50 miles southeast of of uh, Baghdad or does Babylon represent or is it symbolic of the world headquarters of the Antichrist government and Babylon is simply symbolic of that because of the roots of Babylon and false roots I to be honest with you I don't know where I fall on that. Uh, there's a lot of good arguments for literal Babylon, but then the more I studied it this week, I thought, well, maybe it's just referring to the, the sort of the world headquarters or the capital city of, of the Antichrist, and it's not literal Babylon. And I'm just going to be very honest with you. I don't know where I fall on that yet. You know, So I'm just throwing out, you guys study it for yourself, and maybe you'll fall one way or the other. It, it definitely is going to be a literal city, I think the question is whether it's going to be a literal rebuilt Babylon in Iraq, okay, where Babylon has existed. And I will say that one of the strongest arguments for the literal city is this. So maybe I'm answering my own question. <laughs> there are Old Testament prophecies that have predicted that Babylon would be destroyed to a point that it has never actually been destroyed to that point yet. And so I guess... That's where I'm struggling. It's like, I don't see where Babylon has been destroyed to that point yet, like it has predicted. So that's what makes me think I lean a little bit towards the literal Babylon, in the sense it would have to be rebuilt in order to be destroyed like it's been, going to be prophesied that it was going to be. I hope I'm making sense. Sometimes I don't even make sense to myself. So. Yes? Um, in chapter 9, the seven hills. Right. Is that like a little place too? Well, 
that causes a lot of confusion because a lot of people take verse 9, the seven hills or the seven mountains as Rome because they say, well, Rome has always been known as a city on seven hills. The problem with that is this is not a geographical location and that's where people miss this because it says the seven heads are seven mountains a woman sits on and they are also seven kings. And again... Yours says hills, mine says mountains, and I think if you do look at the Greek, it's more a mountain than a hill, and nobody who's ever been to Rome will tell you that they're mountains. They're not mountains. They're just little hills, okay? So I think it's. I think what it's saying there in verse 9 is it, it is just saying that this woman is going to to just come out of that seven, those seven kings and, and kingdoms um, feel. But that's a good question, too. Yes? You'll hear me say, I, I look at it, I'll write it up high so everybody can see it. The word is syncretism, and it describes what religion is going to end up being, which is basically a synthesis of everybody's beliefs to the point where if I believe something that contradicts your belief, then I've got to give it up or compromise it because none of us can come together and believe something that's going to leave somebody else out or contradict anybody else's beliefs or faith system or whatever. It's the whole, I've got to be tolerant of everything. Folks, I know the Bible does teach tolerance to a point, but don't take that out of context because here's my feeling on that. Tolerance is simply a way of also saying... I don't believe anything. Because if you're totally tolerant of anything, that means you really don't stand for anything. If you stand for something and you've got convictions about something, then you can only be tolerant to a certain point. The problem is, this is what's going on in the world today. All right, And, and this has been around actually since here. Because, again, it was just sort of a hodgepodge of all different kinds of faiths and different things. And it really is just going to be like, you know, a big bowl and a little bit of this religion and a little bit of this and a little bit of this belief and whatever. And it's all just sort of mixed together and it just becomes nothing. Because there's, there's nothing to it. It's just whatever anybody wants to believe as long as it doesn't bother anybody else. Well, what kind of belief is that? But... That's, you'll see that in a lot of uh, books today, and especially theological books and stuff, because that's what we're dealing with, is this synchristic form of you know, belief. But that's an excellent point. I think it's just going to be a hodgepodge of different things. Yes? Well, one of the interpretations that I had, I had read was that it was going to be Muslimism that's going to be the overwhelming power that's going to try to take over the earth and the fact that it means submission uh, Islam means submission is the whole point that they are not going to stop until the whole world has submitted to them as as ruler yeah I mean 
I, I personally don't go that route. I, I just think it's going to be a hodgepodge of everything. I really do. Because I, I don't see, uh, I, I just don't see one sort of religion that we know of now or faith or whatever just being totally dominant. I think it's going to be, a, like I said, more of a new agey uh, hodgepodge thing. Except for the fact that the force, you know, that's a religion that believes in winning by force. Oh, yeah. And, you know, if, you, if you're a non-believer, you're going to die. So, right. I mean, if, if their their world their purpose is world domination, right. wherever they put their foot is theirs, then the, the conclusion you would come to is that through the violence that they will be able to overpower those who aren't going to fight back because you're going to wait to strike the other cheek, you know what I mean? Right. So... Um. You know, and, and I, I can see that, but yet at the same time, like there, even during the tribulation, uh, you know, God's going to protect Israel. Um, and and here's the thing, the Antichrist is going to actually make a peace treaty with Israel. I can't see Islam putting up with that or going along with that. Uh, I would think that, again, militant Islam would have a problem with any kind of peace treaty with Israel. But that's what the Antichrist is going to do. And again, maybe they will go along with it. I don't know. But yeah, it, it's certainly certainly good. Yes? China, do they, do they recognize any religion? Well, for the most part, China is an atheistic nation. Don't believe in any god, but what gods they do believe in would definitely be more of a mysticism, mystical type, Eastern mysticism, that type of thing that has, you know, been there for many, many centuries as well. Yeah. Oh yeah. Anybody that yeah, yeah, because they don't believe in any god. Yeah, for the most part. Let's get over here to Revelation 18 for a moment, and we'll come back. I want to get to this is this is pra- more practical than that. You'll notice in Revelation 18, the first couple of verses, the intoxication of the world with this demonic world empire. In chapter 18, after these things, I saw another angel who possessed great authority coming down out of heaven, and the earth was lit up by his radiance. He shouted with a powerful voice, "Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great." She has become a lair for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean detested beast. In other words, a lot of demonic activity. But now notice this, verse 3. For all the nations, all the nations have fallen from the wine of her immoral passion, and the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have gotten rich. From the power of her sensual behavior. Now, one thing I want you to sort of separate in your minds too as we transition from chapter 17 to chapter 18. Chapter 17, for the most part, is about this great prostitute, the apostate church, and her relationship with this final world empire. When you move into chapter 18, instead of looking now at the one world church and one world government, now we're going to start to deal with the one world economy, all right, and the commerce and how that plays in. And that's why at the end of verse 3, they start to remind us that the merchants of the earth have gotten rich from being a part of this world empire. Unlike what some people speculate and think, that the world is going to be uh, poor and that, man, after the rapture, everybody's going to be begging for bread and there's not going to be anything left on the earth. 
I believe that the kingdom of the Antichrist, as we're going to see here tonight in chapter 18, is going to be a very wealthy kingdom. That doesn't mean there's not going to be poor people. There's always going to be poor people, and especially those who don't believe in the Antichrist. But remember, if you're willing to worship the Antichrist, you can buy and sell. And if you are willing to worship the Antichrist, I just think like Satan tempted Jesus. If you bow down to me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. And I think if people bow down to the Antichrist, they'll be pretty comfortable during this time, as comfortable as you can be with the judgments of God coming down on your head. But anyway, it's going to be, I think, a very wealthy, wealthy kingdom. All right? Notice God's warning of judgment, though, to come in verse 4. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people. So you will not take part in her sins, and so you will not receive her plagues, because her sins have piled up all the way to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. And just like the Tower of Babel in the book of Genesis, that was going up, 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 towards heaven, it's almost like, again, paralleling it with Babel and Babylon in the book of Genesis, the crimes of Babylon are piling up, piling up, and reaching to heaven, and God is going to come and in judgment. A couple of things I wanted to point out here by practical application. You'll notice that God's people who will you know, come to know God during the tribulation, God wants to get them out before his judgment falls on the city. All right, And why that's key is because it's just a principle that in God's word, God always warns his people and always allows his people to get out before his judgment comes in a case like this. Just like, and I put down here, Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah. And we all know Lot was not the best Christian in the world. You want to call him a Christian? A God follower at that time in the Old Testament. He wasn't the best, but he knew God. And God wanted him and his family to get out of Sodom and Gomorrah before the brimstone fell. And he warned. And Lot got out. But you remember what happened to Lot's wife? Jesus even said in the Gospel of Luke, remember Lot's wife. Her heart was still in Sodom. And that's why I think she turned back and turned into a pillar of salt, because she really didn't want to leave. She was comfortable in Sodom. She had settled down there. That's where her riches, and that, that's where her heart, remember where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be, Jesus said. And I believe Lot's wife and all the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, their heart was there. So, God, though, warned them of the judgment to come. God warned through Noah, the rain's coming, the flood's coming, believe and get into the ark. So God's always warning. And, and even up to this point in Revelation, don't forget, before God's judgment has fallen, he sent the gospel out through angels. He sent 144,000 uh, Jewish evangelists. He sent these two witnesses we talked about in Revelation 11. He's gotten the word out that judgment's coming if you don't turn to him. So now it's coming to the point where, yep, you better get out because here it comes. All right? God always does that. God is always a God that warns us before it comes. But I want you to notice this. In that phrase, come out of her, my people, I think he's not just talking about a physical separation from the city about to get judgment, but a spiritual separation. And what I mean by that is this. It really isn't a physical separation anyway. It's a spiritual separation because Jesus said about us, Father, don't take them out of the world. Just keep them from the influence of the world. And that's really what it means to be a Christian in the world in which we live. God doesn't want to take us out of the world because he wants us to be an influence. He wants us to be a witness. 
If God was afraid somehow that this world would contaminate us rather than us influencing the world, as soon as we became a Christian, he'd just zap us to heaven. Boom, there we go. Oh, you must have become a Christian because I just, boom, there you go. You know, you're in heaven. It doesn't work that way. When you and I become a Christian, he leaves us here. He leaves us here because the Great Commission is he wants us all to go out and to make disciples and to be a positive spiritual influence in the world in which we, in which we are living. So in order to do that, it's not that we physically separate ourselves from the world, because how can the world be influenced by us if we're physically separating ourselves from them? But we can spiritually, in a sense, separate ourselves from them. We can be distinct, and that's what he's calling them to be. He's not just telling them when he uses this phrase to come out and be physically apart from them, because judgment's about to fall. He is also implying that I want you to be different from them. And then I wrote these verses down. I'd like to look at these verses today because here's some real good practical application for us. And this ties back in then, if you go to James chapter 4, to this whole idea of the apostate church and of spiritual idolatry and adultery. Because you'll notice in the book of James, chapter 4 and verse 4, what he calls those who have fallen in love with this world's system. He calls them what? Adulterers. Well, they are. he's not saying that they're all adulterers in the sense of they're going out and cheating on their spouse. He's saying you've committed spiritual adultery because I'm supposed to be your God. And so if you turn away from me to other gods or to some other belief, you have committed spiritual adultery in God's eyes. And that's why then he goes on to say, and here's how he defines spiritual adultery. Do you not know that friendship with the world means hostility toward God? So whoever decides to be the world's friend makes himself God's enemy. Whoa! Again, just back to, we're on the wrong side of the war. And all he's saying is this. When he uses the word world here, he's not talking about people. Because again, that would contradict the clear teaching of Scripture. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world, and when he uses that word world, he's talking about humans. He's talking about people. When he uses this word world, he doesn't use the same word. He's using a world that speaks of this false system that's anti-God, that has existed in this world really ever since the Garden of Eden, back in Genesis chapter 3. And what he is simply saying is this. For those who call themselves God followers, this world should not be my focus. And I should not get caught up in this world system that is so anti-God. My focus needs to be on Christ. My focus needs to be on His Word. And I cannot allow myself to become a friend of this world system and to allow this world system to suck me in. I've got to remain distinct so that people can see the difference in my life and the difference that God has made in my life. And so when he tells his people to come out and be separate, that's part of what he's saying. And then if you go to 1 John, 1 John, just go over a couple books to the right, to 1 John chapter 2, John then repeats this principle. When in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, and again, when he uses the word world, her world here, totally different word than, than for human beings, for people. 
He says in 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And here's what's in the world. Because all that is in the world, the desire of the flesh and the desire of the eyes and the arrogance or pride produced by material possessions is not from God the Father, but is from the world. And then notice this. And the world is passing away. And all its desires, but the person who does the will of God remains forever. And this is going to tie in here in just a moment with how transitory the things of the world are. And that's why God says, don't spend your life pursuing the things of the world. Because they're passing away. They have no lasting value. If you and I wrap our lives up in the things of the world, the lust of the eye, you know, everything, you know, Jesus said, beware of covetousness. Be content with what you have. The lust of the eyes, always wanting more and never satisfied. The, the, the lust of the eyes, and then he goes on to say, and the desire of the flesh. That no matter what my flesh wants, I just give in to all of its cravings. That's the world. And of course, this arrogance and pride that's produced by all these material possessions. He says, don't let that be the focus of your life. Be distinct and be different. Well, we can certainly see where these verses, I mean, they speak to us today because the whole world is chasing after stuff and things and things that won't last and they're trying to fill up that void in their life and they're trying to find some kind of contentment and peace and joy through all these transitory temporal earthly things and the only way they're going to find true lasting joy and peace and contentment is through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Not through loving this world and all that the world has to offer. And again, going back to the temptation of Christ, that's why when Satan tempted Christ and said, if you just bow and worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Sorry. All these kingdoms of the world, Jesus knew, they're going to pass away. All the kingdoms, all the great world empires, where are they now? They're just ruins that you can go and visit over there. Where are they now? They've passed on. And how many of these great leaders do we even know? Do you know all the pharaohs of Egypt? Do you know all the kings of Babylon? Do you all know the leaders of Greece and Rome? I thought I paid attention in history. I couldn't tell you but a handful of them. So all these guys that tried to make a name for themselves and be known, and, they, you know, and it's no different today. What do men and women of power and wealth in our world try to do today? They try to build these, I better be careful, you know who I'm going to be talking about. They build these big towers, and they put their name on it. Because they want to be known, you know, whether it's in Vegas or New York City or L.A. or wherever. It's like, I'm going to be known. My friends, I hate to tell you, and I feel bad for you, but I wouldn't trade places with you, because guess what? All that you have is going to just fall through your fingers one day, but what I've got through Christ is going to last for all of eternity. Isn't that cool? You start to see the contrast, right? So, that's what we're talking about in Revelation 18. That's what he means. Then, notice this. Then go back to Revelation 18, look at verse 7. Again, talking about this pride thing. Oh my, this pride can be so deceptive and it can cause problems, just like it did back here. The pride of man thinks that it can actually win a war against God. Well, now notice, the pride of Babylon says this in verse 7 of chapter 18. As much as she exalted herself and lived in sensual luxury, to this extent, give her torment and grief, because she said to herself, I rule as a queen, I am no will, and I will never experience 
grief. Basically, I'm invulnerable. I'm immortal. Nothing's going to happen to me. Nothing. Well, I want you to turn to this passage of Scripture. Keep your finger in Revelation 18. Go to James chapter 4. Let's look at the wisdom of God's Word and what that says concerning that. In James chapter 4, and here again, what practical application to you and I even today. Here's what James says. James says in chapter 4, verse 13, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we're going to go into this or that town and spend a year there and do business and make a profit. James says, you do not know about tomorrow. What is your life like? You are a puff of smoke that appears for a short time and then vanishes. You ought to say instead, if the Lord is willing, then we will live and do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. He's basically saying, don't get to a point in your pride where we presume that we're going to live forever, and we can just live as if we're going to live forever, and oh yeah, I'm, I'm making plans, and next year I'm going to do this, and next year I'm going to do that. It'd be better to say, you know what I need to realize? How short life is. And you know what? Maybe I will be around next year. And if God permits me to be around, then I'll do this or that. It's a whole different mindset. Instead of saying, oh yeah, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, i got plans for this, i got plans for that. My father was a godly man. I think I've shared this before. Out of anybody else, he was the greatest influence on my life uh, as a Christian. But my father is a classic example. He lived. He worked his whole life at Pittsburgh Plate Glass Company, 35 years as a crane operator in a glass company, hard manual labor job. And a couple weeks after he retired, he died of pancreatic cancer. He never had time. He was 58 years old when he died. He never had time. to. If my dad would not have lived his life the way the Bible said, which is, I'm not going to wait until sometime down the road to go on trips and enjoy life or do this or that, or I'm going to wait until then to... No, my dad lived the way I think the Bible said. Live every day to the fullest. Live every day as if it could be your last. Don't presume you're going to have a lot of time. And you know what else is interesting? And and I'm not, please, what I'm about to say, I'm not dissing Michael Landon, because Michael Landon could even be a believer in Christ. But it was very interesting to me that just a couple months before my dad contracted pancreatic cancer, if you go back about 15 to 20 years, Michael Landon contracted pancreatic cancer. And if you remember, of course, Michael Landon had a bunch of, of, of money to be able to, to seek out all these experimental treatments to try to override pancreatic. Of course, pancreatic cancer, you get that, you're, you know, there's no cure. And it just showed me, even at that age, and I was in my early 20s at that point, that here's a man who basically had all the wealth of the world that he could to try to pursue all these different things, and even that didn't gain him one more day on this earth. When his time was over, it was over. And then my father died just a few months later. But it just goes to show again, let's not allow our pride to think somehow we're invulnerable. See, that's what happens. We begin to think we're going to live forever. We begin to live our lives sort of sloppily and just sort of, you know, comfortably in the, in the wrong sense of the word as if, you know, I'm just going to do this, that when we should be asking, God, what do you want me to do? And how do you want me to fill my days? And what, what, do you, what, what more do you have for me to do? Because whatever time I have on this earth is so short compared to eternity. And so James says, let's keep God in mind when we make our plans. 
And let, let's, keep, let's keep God as our focus rather than getting caught up again on all these worldly pursuits that when all is said and done, is it really going to make a difference in eternity? And then, go back to Revelation 18, we all know how quickly the landscape of life can change. And that's exactly what Revelation 18 is talking about. This would be a great chapter to just share with somebody who, again, thinks that things just going to keep on going as usual. Notice in Revelation 18, beginning at verse 8. Maybe this is where I got verse 8 from. It says, in a single day, Babylon's going to be destroyed. In a single day. Because notice, the Lord God, verse 8, who judges her is powerful. And when his judgment comes, it's not going to take long. Then notice verse 10. They will stand a long way off because they are afraid of her turmoil and will say, Whoa, whoa, great city, Babylon, the powerful city. In a single hour your doom has come. Verse 17. Because in a single hour such great wealth has been destroyed. And then verse 19. In a single hour, at the very end of the verse, she has been destroyed. You see, God is reminding us how quickly the landscape of life can change. These people in Babylon, man, they were they were living in luxury. They were living the high life. Everything was just, you know, oh, yeah, those millions of people that disappeared a few years ago, I forgot about them, man. I'm going on to something else. And this God thing and all these plagues and stuff, I'm, I'm just not, I'm just wrapping myself up in all these worldly goods and just enjoying myself. And notice, in one hour, in one hour, it's all gone. And then notice, their temporal riches slipping through their fingers because in chapter 18, look at, look at how the merchants of the earth react. Then the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn for her because no one buys their cargo any longer. Cargo such as gold, silver, precious stones, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all sorts of things made of citron wood, all sorts of objects made of ivory, all sorts of things made of expensive wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, perfumed ointment, frankincense, wine, olive oil, and costly flour, wheat, cattle, sheep, horses, four-wheeled carriages, and don't miss this, slaves and human lives. You've heard the term nowadays, human trafficking, Human trafficking is something that's going to continue even through the book of Revelation where people actually kidnap people or buy and sell people as basically cargo, as, as commodities, as commerce. You know, that's what the Bible says. Human lives will be exchanged. And not just as slaves, but just as, as commerce. As, oh, I'm going to trade you two for one. Yeah, I mean, that's the way it's going to be. It's just incredible. But notice this, then, if you... You know what? You don't have to keep your finger in Revelation. We're going to leave. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 6. I just want to share these passages with you, and then we'll close it out tonight. Thank you all for being just so patient going through all this. But this is such powerful passages of Scripture that we need to, we need to see them, and we need to meditate on them and pay attention. Speaking of wealth slipping through the fingers, here's why the Bible says... Here should be our, our mindset upon this kind of stuff. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, Now godliness combined with contentment is great gain, or brings great profit. For we brought nothing into this world, and so we cannot take a single thing out either. I've done over a hundred funerals as a pastor. 
No funeral that I've ever done, anybody ever took anything with them. It doesn't happen. But if we have food and shelter, we will be satisfied with that. Those who long to be rich, and here again, please let me make this statement. The Bible never says it's sinful to be wealthy or rich. The Bible simply says it's a sin to long to be rich for the wrong reason, or to love money, okay, as we're going to get to. That's what the Bible is again. Because there were many great people of God who were wealthy, Job, Abraham, who used their wealth and used the blessings of God that God gave them to not only bless themselves and their family, but to bless other people as well. So I wanted to make that distinction. But notice this, verse 9, those who long to be rich, however, who that's all they're pursuing, that's all they're after, stumble into temptation and a trap and many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And you and I all know of people who the dollar was all that they went after and they ruined their families, they ruined their own lives, they ruined they just they ruined everything by just making that the pursuit of their life. We all know people like that. For the love of money is the root of all evils. And some people, in reaching for it, have strayed from the faith and stabbed themselves with many pains. Wow, what a what a powerful passage. So we got to be careful, folks. Judgment is coming, and we need to be different. We, we shouldn't love the world and pursue the things of the world, but the things of God and realize we're not invulnerable and to make sure that we make every day count because we don't know how long we've got. And to realize that life can change in one hour. I'll never forget walking into my father's hospital room. And it was as if God prepared me it wasn't going to be good. And I can remember my dad sitting there on the, on the edge of the hospital bed and he just looked at me and says, I got terminal pancreatic cancer. They're giving me about four or five weeks to live. It's like, wow. Just last week, we were laughing and yiping it up at, in, in the house and no thoughts that in a few weeks he'd be gone. You know, It just shows one doctor appointment, one traffic accident, one this, one that, how our landscape of life can change. And that's why we should not be pursuing the temporal things of the earth but eternal things that truly last and truly matter. Which leads me to this last passage that I hope you'll turn to. One last passage. My, one of my favorite passages that goes along with this in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12. You remember last week we talked about this great earthquake at the end of the bold judgments in chapter 16. It's going to come an earthquake like no other earthquake that's ever been. Well, that goes along with what we're learning here then in Hebrews chapter 12, beginning at verse 25. Because the writer of Hebrews is anticipating this great earthquake coming and this great shaking taking place on the earth. And he says, Take care not to refuse the one who is speaking, meaning God. For if they did not escape when they refused the one who warned them on earth, how much less shall we if we reject the one who warns from heaven? Then his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, I will once more shake not only the earth, but heaven too. Now this phrase, once more, indicates the removal of what is shaken, that is, of created things, so that what is unshaken may remain. So since we are receiving an unshakable kingdom, let us give thanks, and through this let us offer worship pleasing to God in devotion and awe, for our God is indeed a devouring fire. 
One principle I'd like to leave you with is this, out of that passage. The writer of Hebrews says, we need to begin to separate in our lives and in our minds the eternal things that cannot be shaken from the temporal things that can be shaken and that can be taken in a very short amount of time. That's what Hebrews is saying. We have received through Christ a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We are part of something that is so stable that nothing can ever be done to take that away from us. And there are things and people that we come in contact on this earth that are eternal. Okay? Not temporal. But how many of us struggle with pursuing the temporary things of life that can be shaken, that can pass through our fingers, that can be taken from us in a short amount of time compared to those eternal things that God wants us to build our life on. My friends, one of the greatest truths in all the Bible is found in Matthew 7 where Jesus says, I'm your rock. Build your house upon me. I am your rock. And we need to remember that in the world even in which we live where there's so much instability and chaos and confusion and all kinds of things out there. Jesus is our rock. Let's build our house on him. Question. Uh, just um, about things happening, life changing so quickly. I just heard something the other day. I don't know the details. It's really not that important. But the, uh, a man, and I think it was Florida somewhere, won a multi-million dollar lottery. And just within days or weeks afterwards, had a car collection and an alarm system set up, a real car, and um, the alarm went off and he went out and the, you know, the police showed up for the alarm system. And something happened and the police shot and accidentally shot and killed him. Oh. <laughs> wow. And I don't know if he was a Christian, I mean, maybe he was, but it was just, yeah. you know, I'm sure he was completely in love with his money he just won and within yeah. days it was over. Moses said in Psalm 90, teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts to wisdom. And I think I'll leave you with this just one minute story in the city of Pompeii that was devastated by that volcano where they were basically frozen in time because they didn't have time to escape. When they went and did a little digging in Pompeii and some archaeological digs, they found this man who was running and he had in his hand, one hand, some gold coins and in his other hand, this pouch of gold. And that's what he was, it was like he had went back into his house and he grabbed the things that he thought was most important and he was headed out the door and that's when he was frozen for all time with that volcanic ash over him, clinging to those things that mean nothing. So sad, so sad. So here's what we learned from Revelation 17 and 18. We learn again, put our lives on the rock, Live for eternal things, not for temporal things. Realize we're not invulnerable. And the landscape of life can change. And let's, let's live our lives distinct, different, so that the world can see the transforming power of Jesus Christ in our lives. Guys, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Let's close with prayer, and then I'll let you folks go tonight. Father... We just come before you tonight and just want to pause for just a moment and just ask that you would just help us 
to take each day as it comes and as it's given to us as a gift from you. Lord, I even think about the mind every Tuesday that, you know, one of the sobering thoughts is that no Tuesday in the mind is ever going to be exactly like any other Tuesday. There's not going to be the same exact combination of people in the mind every Tuesday. It, it could be different, and it might be different forever because there may be one of us not here next Tuesday. It's just that way. It's, that's reality. And so, Father, I pray not that this might discourage us, but, that, Father, this, this might raise our life and the way we live life and the way we approach life and approach you to a whole different level. And where we might realize, like James has reminded us tonight, that our life is like a vapor. It's just like a puff of smoke that comes on the scene of this earth for a very short time and then goes off. And that what really counts in this life is not all these worldly things that we can accumulate and get involved with, but all the eternal things that we can impact and the eternal uh, things that we come in contact with and, and the souls of people that we can influence on our way through this world to glory. Lord, I pray that as we leave here tonight, that once again, you, you would just remind us of this truth that we've studied and that we've seen tonight and just help us all just to, just to live for you like never before in this age in which you've placed us because, Father, we believe we have a great opportunity to witness for you. Father, even with things like the Da Vinci Code and the Gospel of Judas, Father, these are opportunities for the Church of Jesus Christ to share their faith with the world. Help us to rise up and do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Guys, have a great week, and Lord willing, we'll see you all back next Tuesday. And Revelation 19 next Tuesday. We're coming back. We're riding those white horses.